If you would, turn with me to the Psalms, to Psalm 137. And a word of warning, Uh, Psalm 137 may be, it certainly is a very graphic psalm in its violence, and it may be one of the hardest uh, parts of the Bible, certainly maybe even the hardest psalm to to read or to preach. And so just to to kind of give you a a heads up, I'm going to, of course, do the best I can and explain uh, what it means and what it's talking about, uh, but it's even with some, some fear and trepidation that uh, I come to Psalm 137, but I think it has a, a powerful message for us as we uh, stand here at the beginning of, of Advent looking towards Christmas. So uh, let's read together Psalm. Uh, I'll read, if you'll read along on your own, Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon... There we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. Let's pray. It's hard to read. It's hard to fathom, Lord. And so even more so, God, we ask for your help in understanding and for your help in applying. Uh, This is your word. The Apostle Paul tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be equipped for every good work. And this is part of that God-breathed word, your inspired word, and it is useful to us. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us to make much use of it today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. A passage like this certainly raises more questions than it answers. If you're a skeptic, if you're not a Christian, then you may read this and think, I told you so. Uh, Religion is violent. Your God is violent. He's sadistic. Here it is right here in your Bible. Uh, I want nothing to do with you. I want nothing to do with your God. And if you're a Christian, uh, you may not probably are probably are not familiar with this psalm. It certainly doesn't make it on any hallmark cards. 
And you're probably asking, why is this even in the Bible? How can this be an inspired prayer? How can this come from one of God's people? Is this even right uh, to pray this way? And then maybe even most of all, why in the world, Kevin, would you choose this psalm for the beginning of Advent? This season of, of joy and warmth. We're looking forward to Christmas. Why, why preach a psalm with such a gruesome, graphic ending? And those are good questions, and they deserve an answer. And so at least let me answer the last question, why for Advent, and then hopefully in the course of the sermon we answer the others. Uh, and the answer is this, that Advent begins with the longing and expectation that God will make things right in the world. That what we are doing in Advent as we look forward to Christmas is that we are longing for God to show up. We are longing for God to arrive and make things right in the world. That's the longing we ought to have in Advent. Uh, To put it another way, and you can see it in the title of the sermon, I Uh, borrowed this phrase from a a preacher I heard years ago. What we're longing for in Advent is the right-side-upping of the upside-downness. We want what is upside-down to be made right-side-up. And that's what this psalm leads us to. Right first, what it helps us to do is it helps us to realize and forces us to realize that things are upside-down. If you didn't know that, if you didn't realize that, if you didn't realize we lived in a broken and fallen world, uh, then this psalm kind of crashes into that fantasy with hard reality that we live in an upside-down, broken world. But it also tells us, this psalm also points us to the fact that God is going to do something. That what the psalmist wants is for God to intervene. What the psalmist wants is for God to step in and make it right. And so it seemed a fitting way uh, to begin Advent. And I think there's a few ways this psalm helps us. One, uh, it helps us in that we can weep as we wait in the midst of sin and suffering. Maybe that doesn't sound like a very cheery Christmas message. Um, And maybe that's because... The way that we celebrate and get ready for Christmas makes pretty much glosses over the dark, the dark spots. It's not uncommon for people to hate the holidays, uh, especially those of you who have experienced significant loss. Uh, the holidays, as we know, bring that all close to home. And yet the way that we celebrate Christmas or the way that we get ready for it is we usually just throw some garland on it. And lots of food. We kind of try to gloss over it. And we're ne- we don't really allow ourselves to enter into the suffering. We don't allow ourselves to deal with it. And so this psalm actually stops us in our tracks. It keeps us from celebrating and getting ready for Christmas in a way that, that glosses over sin and suffering. Let's, uh, let's look at the psalm. And uh, let me explain a little bit of the background behind it. This psalm, uh, the psalms anyway are... Uh, are, not only are they kind of physically the heart of the Bible, you see them, they're kind of right there in the center, uh, but also they are, the, uh, they are the spiritual heart of the Scriptures, right? The Psalms are where knowledge of God and experience of God 
a right knowledge of God and a right experience of God come together as God's people pray back to him. So that's, what's, that's what the Psalms are. And right here in Psalm 137, as gruesome as it is, this is a prayer. It's a prayer of a man who is in exile. Uh, this prayer was written after Babylon had come in and destroyed Jerusalem. And they had carried all of God's people, or most of God's people, away into exile. And so here they are. They're arriving uh, by the rivers in Babylon, uh, the Tigris and the Euphrates, I believe. They, they, here they are walking into Babylon, and they, uh, they sit down, and they weep. They cry. Um, they've seen their homes destroyed. They've seen God's temple destroyed. They've lost everything. You can understand his grief. You can understand his reality. And if that weren't bad enough, their captors are mocking them, taunting them. This man is a musician, probably one of the, one of the musicians that led the people in worship at the temple. He's brought his harp with him. And now the Babylonian soldiers start taunting him, saying, Go ahead, sing us one of your Zion songs. Sing us one of those happy, victorious songs you used to sing about how great your temple is, about how great your God is, about how great you are. Sing it now, now that you're on your knees under my boot. Sing us one of your happy Zion songs. Let's hear some music. And so they're being taunted. They're being mocked. Because in the ancient world, if... If another country came in and conquered your country, it meant that their gods were stronger. And so what, what, this, what this taunt means is this, this guy is basically being told, uh, where is your God now? Where is that strong and powerful God who created the heavens and the earth that you used to sing about? What's he done for you lately? And suffering, right, leaves you feeling like that oftentimes. Uh, that you sit and you weep and you are mocked by your trials, you're mocked by your enemies who say, what's he done for you lately? And so he hangs up his harp. He hangs up his harp on the tree because there's nothing to sing about. How can we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How can we sing... What's interesting, though, is that he still sings. He still writes this prayer. He just refuses to cave to the mocking of his tormentors. No happy victory songs here, just a song of lament. And so he responds by saying, how can we sing? How can we sing the the Lord's song in a foreign land? So that's what it meant for them. Here's what it means for us, and here's how I think it helps us, first of all. It reminds us that we, too, live in a broken and fallen world. And it's okay to be sad about that. In fact, it's right to be sad about that. If you haven't, uh, if you haven't yet seen the movie Inside Out, that's, a, that's, a, that's currently a favorite in our house. Uh, it's, the, it's the latest one uh, to DVD from Pixar. Uh, So it's animated, so if you're an adult with no children at home, you're going to have to condescend a little bit and watch an animated movie because it's really, really good. And and, and the premise of Inside Out is this, right, that you get to go inside the head of this little girl named Riley. Uh, And inside her head are all of the emotions who are are driving her. You have joy, 
anger, fear, disgust, and sadness. And Riley is uh, an 11-year-old girl. Uh, And here's the thing. Joy always wants to be in control. Now, because it's it's on DVD, I don't feel like I'm spoiling anything. You're fully able to go out and get this. Okay, I I won't spoil the end of the movie. But here's what Joy wants to do. Whenever the other emotions want to step in and kind of exert their influence, Joy always wants to spin it. If anger is going to take the, take the controls, she's always going to want to step in and say, whoa, 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 let's figure out how this can be happy. All the memories have to be happy. We need Riley to be happy. And so Joy always dominates the other emotions into doing it her way. And the one she struggles with the most is sadness. She cannot figure out why sadness even exists. She doesn't know what what role sadness is supposed to play. And so she never lets sadness even touch the control panel. She does not know what to do with sadness. And then some trauma comes into Riley's life. She's forced to move across the country. She has to give up her home and her hockey team, and her friends. And Joy desperately tries to get everything under control, to get all the other emotions to do it her way so that Riley can be happy, happy, happy. And everything blows up. And Joy has to come to terms with the fact that actually sadness, there are things that sadness can do that Joy cannot do. And that sometimes sadness must be the hero of the story. And what she does is she creates an even bigger problem by stuffing all the other emotions down. And that eventually she learns that sadness has to take over. And so, in the same way, this psalm tells us that it's okay to not always be happy, happy, happy. In fact, it's downright unbiblical to always be happy, happy, happy. Sometimes there's a role for sadness, especially when we live in a world as broken and fallen as ours is. And if we're not careful, particularly at this time of year, we will gloss over the dark parts. We'll be like joy. We're going to try and dominate everything that has shades of darkness to it and make it happy. And the Bible says, and this psalm says, you don't have to. It's okay. Right? We try to cover the brokenness with the bustle, with the busy. If we can just be busy, I won't notice the brokenness. But four million people in four years, that's how many have left Syria and have sought asylum in other countries. That's a, that's a population about the size of the state of Alabama. That won't let you get away with glossing over the dark parts. Child trafficking in Jemison won't let you gloss over the dark parts. The world is broken. And, that's, and this psalm says that we can be honest, that we actually can weep. It's okay to weep, right? So we can, we can come to this season and we can hear Bing Crosby and we can see the lights and we can still say, Something's not right. The world needs something 
deeper. The world needs something better, something greater. And I want you to notice that the psalmist isn't wallowing in his grief. He's using it to take him somewhere. He writes this prayer to focus his sadness and his anger in the proper place. And so Advent, first of all, says, and the psalm says, it's okay. We can, we can weep in a world and in lives full of sin and suffering. And I would even add that until we do, we won't really be free. As long as, as, long as we gloss over, as long as we play the stoic, when, when people ask you how you are, what do you, what's the first thing you say? Fine. It's not fine. And it's okay that it's not fine. And until we, until we can be free enough to say it's not fine, we're going to have a hard time coming to grips with what really Christmas meant, with what it meant for the people in Jesus' day, what it ought to mean for us, and what his return on the last day will mean for us. Because it's not fine. And it's okay that it's not fine. Or it's okay that, it's, that we weep, that we feel that it's not fine. But then there's a second thing. There's a second way this psalm helps us. And it's this. Not only can we weep for sin and suffering, but we can call for justice to be done. And we can trust that God will do it. We can call for justice to be done. That's what the psalmist wants. That's why he prays what he prays in verses 7 through 9. He says, remember, Lord. Remember is not the Bible's way of saying, hey, now don't forget. Don't forget to pick up the milk. On the way home from the grocery store, or on the way home from work, when the Bible says "remember," it's asking God to act. It's asking God to do something, to be engaged. He says, "Remember, Lord, remember Edom, our cousins that gloated over us while our city burned. Remember them. Remember the daughter of Babylon." Doomed to be destroyed, set for destruction. See, by the time the psalm was written, already God had decried, had, had issued judgment against Babylon. In Isaiah, in Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, Babylon was already doomed to be destroyed. So even though Babylon was a tool used by God to accomplish a purpose in Israel's life, she had taken it too far. She, and it was, this was common in the ancient world. It was common in ancient warfare, right? What better way to demoralize your enemy than to grab their young children by the ankles and slam them into the rocks, right? Slam them into the ground. That was, that was what Babylon did, and she would pay for that. And that's what the psalmist is asking for. He's not, he's not venting his vengeance. He's saying... God, would you act in justice? In fact, would you keep your promises? You promised that Babylon would pay, and we want her to pay. We want her. It's the, it's the eye for an eye principle. It's that, the, it's that the punishment would fit the crime. That's what he's asking for. That's what he's acknowledging God must do, and that's what God must do. God must... If he's just, the punishment must fit 
the crime. So the question is, can we pray this way? What do we do with a prayer like this? And when I, So to answer that question, I want you to notice a few things. One, I want you to see where the psalmist takes his anger and his anguish. He says, remember, Lord. He says, you handle it, Lord. He doesn't, he doesn't wallow in it. He's not stewing in his anger. The psalmist is not saying, I will not rest until I personally make every one of those Babylonian scoundrels pay for this. That's not what the psalmist prays. The psalmist, as angry and as sad as he is, he puts it in the Lord's hands. He says, you handle it. You alone are the just God. You alone are the holy God. You alone have the right to do this. It's similar to what Paul says in Romans 12, 19. He says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. So the psalmist is taking his sadness and his anger, and he's going to the only one who can handle the outcome. He's going to the only one who even has a right to do something about it. So yes, we can ask God for justice. We can look at the atrocities of an ISIS, and we can say, God, do something. Stop the murder. Stop the raping. Stop the burning. We can pray that those who do wrong get their just punishment. But there's a wrinkle in praying for that, isn't there? You see, the Israelites put themselves in this position. Babylon and Edom, they went overboard. But Israel is in exile because Israel had sinned against God. And Israel was warned that if they continued in their idolatry and unbelief, they would end up in exile. So they have no one to blame for where they sit and weep but themselves. And what that tells us is that if we're going to ask for justice, we must first also recognize our own sin, our own culpability our own guilt. That's why we can't take personal justice. It's why Paul tells us in Romans to not avenge ourselves. We have no right. Israel had no right to avenge herself. She was guilty. But so was Babylon, and she knew it. And so she went to the Lord with it. So if we're going to pray for justice, we must also, A, see our own mercy... See the own mercy that's been given to us, see our own guilt, understand our own forgiveness. But on the other side of the cross, we can also ask that God would show mercy. We pray for justice and we pray for forgiveness. That's really what we want in a world full of sin and suffering. Lord, either forgive them and stop it or bring them to judgment and stop it. And the truth of the matter is that judgment is going to be meted out either way. Either judgment is meted out by you personally, on you personally, or it's met on Jesus. So if none of us are just and none of us are holy, then it should be a terrifying thing to ask for God's judgment. And so what ultimately are we praying for 
And it's, it's what this psalm points beyond, and it's this, that God answers our waiting, and he answers our longing with the advent of Jesus, with the arrival of Jesus, right? The longing that you read about in Psalm 137, this expectation that God would intervene and do something, carried Israel from this point all the way until the birth of Jesus. Their exile would end. They would come back to the promised land. They would rebuild the temple, but it was never the same. They were always under, under the thumb of someone else. God's presence never returned to the temple. All of the promises of God looked like they had failed. And so when the Old Testament closes, they're still longing. They're still waiting for God to intervene. Which is why there's so much singing when the New Testament opens. When you read the birth and childhood narratives in Matthew and Luke, why it's song after song after song, because finally, God has arrived. The advent has come. And so they watched and they prayed and they waited, waiting for the, the arrival of a Messiah who would, who would bring a better day. And that's what Advent is. And we need to recapture that sense of waiting and longing. Rather than gloss over the darkness in the world, rather than gloss over our own sadness and anger, we can see it and own it because we are a people who are waiting on something better. We're waiting not on the first arrival because that's already come. See that word Advent, it's a Latin word. And when it's used in the New Testament, it actually doesn't talk about Jesus' birth. It doesn't talk about his first advent. When it's used in the, in the New Testament, it talks about his second. It talks about Jesus coming with the clouds of heaven to finish the work he began. And so we wait. We celebrate the birth of Jesus, but even as we celebrate the birth of Jesus, we wait for the second coming of Jesus when God will make all things Right, and God will make all things new. We actually wait between the advents, the first and the second. Jesus has come, and he will come again. So here's what this psalm acknowledges. Not that God is sadistic and violent, but that the world most certainly is. The world is a bloody and violent place. But this psalm also acknowledges that there is one who meets the blood and meets the violence and he triumphs. How does God answer our longing and fix the brokenness? How does he take all that is upside down and make it right side up? Well, he enters the world as a little one. And he goes to the cross and he sheds his own blood. He, Jesus, is dashed against the rock of God's righteous anger so that no other little ones will have to be. Let me close with this picture from Revelation. The psalmist hangs up his harp in the trees because there's no glad song to sing. In Revelation chapter 4, John gets this picture of God seated on the throne, and it's a majestic and beautiful picture and then we pick up in, in Revelation 5. 
all of creation is, is praising God and singing his glory. And then John sees this. He says, he saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, that's God, a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? So this scroll is God's purpose in the world. And if no one can open it, if no one can fulfill it, then it doesn't get opened. And the bad news is is that no one is worthy. No one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. John weeps because it looks like all of the sad things will not come untrue, that all of the upside downness will not be made right. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. How? How is the Lamb worthy? Why can we sing? For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. Advent tells us there will be singing again. And there will be singing because the Lamb has conquered. And the Lamb has conquered by his own blood. And all who are found in him will rejoice evermore. Let's pray. O come, O come, Emmanuel, God with us. O come, thou dayspring, come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here. Dispel the gloomy clouds of night and death's dark sadness put to flight. Rejoice. Rejoice, O Israel. Emmanuel has come. We rejoice, Lord God. We rejoice even even as we weep. Even as we see the darkness in our own hearts and the darkness in our world. We light candles that say there is a coming hope. A hope that has come. A hope that will dispel the gloomy clouds 
of night and put death's dark shadows to flight. We wait for his coming again. And we know that our weeping is only for the night, that it is not without merit, and that our joy shall come in the morning. Lord, for those who are trapped in hopelessness, I pray that they would know the hope of a God who redeems, the hope of a God who makes right what is upside down and does it not by force, but by his own death and new life. That all of the upside downness of the world met in the innocent Son of God being crucified on a cross in Jerusalem. And from that moment forward, all of the sad things have begun to come untrue. And the upside down is being made right side up. We long for the day when that will be done. Until that day, help us to watch and to wait and to long. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.